Hello and welcome. This is Media Talk USA. I'm Jeff Jarvis. On this podcast, is the Associated Press trying to destroy the internet as we know it? But isn't it time that we replace them anyway? And what does Google have to say about the matter? We all respect copyright. And if at any point in time that a publisher feels that what we are doing is something that uh, that they don't like, putting aside any sort of legal issues, just from a business standpoint, they feel like, I'm not getting value from this, they're in complete control of their content and the ability to sort of say, no, I don't want to participate in this. Also, did TechCrunch go too far in revealing the content of sensitive Twitter company documents? And I ask, has the news business become a charity case? Media Talk USA from GuardianAmerica.com and PaidContent.org. Welcome to the August edition of Media Talk USA from The Guardian. The temperature may be rising outside our studio here at the City University of New York Graduate School of Journalism, but our first panelist has brought some fresh mountain air with him. Welcome to John Temple, the former publisher, president, and editor of the Rocky Mountain News, which sadly ended its 150-year run this past February. But now John has a new life, a second childhood perhaps, blogging about his new perspectives on news. Welcome, John. Thank you. And the radio booth should feel like home turf for our next panelist, David Folkenflik, the media correspondent of NPR, where he contributes to the morning edition, All Things Considered, and Talk of the Nation. Uh-oh, I have a radio pro in my midst. <laughs> Welcome, David. Thanks. Media Talk USA. As we record this, Microsoft and Yahoo finally lashed up their search together. And it made me wonder, when was the last time you went to yahoo.com. It's been a while for me. And I even have a Yahoo email account, and I just don't use it. I use Google now. Uh, I use my Google Mail, but uh, I go to Yahoo's uh, news sites fairly often, and I, I will use it as a news search. Uh, I actually find it a little, a little more interesting than the Google news search. Good. I think it's been years, honestly, since I've gone to the Yahoo homepage, except to see that they have a new homepage. But homepages are just so 1999. Uh, the homepage I've only gone to recently by accident. Ah, uh, okay. There the, we have the, it. the Yahoo News site I find useful. So, right, first up on our agenda, what is it with the Associated Press? Richard Perez Pena reported in the New York Times that Tom Curley, president and CEO of the AP, thinks, quote, even minimal use of a news article online required a licensing agreement with the news organization that produced it, end quote. Perez Pena said Curley specifically cited references that include a headline and a link to an article, which is precisely how search engines, news aggregators, and bloggers from Drudge to the Huffington Post to the New York Times to humble little buzz machine, my blog, all drive traffic to news sites. Now, implicit in this is the notion that the internet doesn't work for content companies that it doesn't work for news. Earlier this week, I sat down with Josh Cohen, the product manager for Google News, and asked him whether he thinks the internet is broken and what he makes of these copyright issues. There's two parts of it. There's one, there's, there's the technology of the internet and what, it's, what it is as a platform. Uh, and then there's the other part of it, which is the business model and the changes that the, the internet is sort of bringing to a lot of these, these media companies. So I think from a lot of perspectives, they're saying, well, it doesn't work for my business model, therefore the technology doesn't work. And I think that's a big leap. I, I think there's certainly, uh, there are always challenges with, with copyright online and off. 
Um, that's you know that's why there are copyright laws in the first place. I think some things like the Hamburg Declaration uh, sort of I think it misses uh, some 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 key facts there. Um, there's the sense that uh, and and there's and it's also important to draw the distinction between I think aggregators, which not to say that that publishers don't have issues with search engines and and uh, and, and different aggregators, um, but it's really important to draw the distinction between those types of, of business models and what they're claiming of just wholesale. Um, theft of their content. Um, obviously, there's 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 a pretty big distinction between those two, and so I think some publishers sort of say, well, um, you know, there's that content out there. You're showing a headline or a snippet, and that's sort of stealing my content. And I don't like that. Um, I can only speak from a Google perspective, and and I, I, you know, to some by some extent, I think any of the reputable search engines. I mean, we all respect copyright, and if at any point in time that a publisher feels that what we are doing is something that uh, that they don't like, putting aside any sort of legal issues, just from a business standpoint, they feel like, I'm not getting value from this. They're in complete control of their content and the ability to sort of say, no, I don't want to participate in this. So the Hamburg Declaration that Josh talks about there is a bunch of European publishers coming together to complain that they need other rights. We've seen discussion of extending copyright, and now we see the AP shooting what I think is a shot across the bow of the internet and all of us. John, you were an AP client. You paid them a lot of money. What's your take on this? Well, I think it's very depressing that AP is spending its time trying to, to and 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 communicating so poorly. They're 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 making it very cloudy. Nobody understands what their concern is. Nobody understands how is it possible that they're saying a link is a violation of copyright. I mean, that just doesn't make any sense under everything we've known for years and years. So to me, it's another example of AP being in a bind where it doesn't really understand what its future is. And it's flailing around and the newspaper industry is flailing around. And it's, I think it's an ill-advised move. And if they were going to do it, they should at least have been clear about it. Here is a communication company and nobody has a clue what it is they're trying to communicate. And it's typical of the leadership and the board of AP that they're basically come across as bullies. That is kind of what they portray themselves as. And they find it very difficult not to. And they could if they were more open. It's a, it's a, it's a deep-seated problem with the AP. It's just reflective of it. And it's bad news. David? Well, probably your listeners are those people who don't need any kind of primer in this stuff. But think about the AP. I mean, the AP at once should be very cocky right now. They're enormous. They, they you know, bestride the globe. And they get information and do often uh, – courageous and important work at, at hotspots and remote locations in the U.S. and abroad. And as everybody else in the big mainstream media is cutting and gutting, or nearly everyone else, this should be a proud moment for them. They have no clue what the business model of future holds for them. They don't print on paper. Theoretically, that should be an advantage. But they're a collective. They're sort of owned by their clients. Their clients are upset with them. I remember when I was at the Baltimore Sun, top editors there thought they were being gouged and really want to push back. You've seen these small collectives of, re of newspapers in regions, places like Florida, like Ohio, that have thought of, them, thought of themselves as, uh, you know, waging hand-to-hand -hand combat, these smaller papers. And they're saying, screw the AP. We're going to shut them aside. We're going to give them notice. We're not going to take them anymore. My old employer, the now bankrupt Tribune Company, has said the same thing, given two years' notice. We're going to share regional news and do it instead. So the AP's clients are upset with them. Now the AP is signaling to the outside world, if you, as you both have signaled, hey, we're not going to let you do uh, uh, take information from us without our getting a, a kickback in this. And as the quote that you offered from the Times indicates, they're saying at least legally, even a link and a headline and a, a sentence is going to be it. Now, to me, I was I was very taken by that because it's he said you know legally it could even include that. 
it wasn't clear to me whether the bloodhounds would be unleashed on that. And if that's if that's the case, the AP is saying we don't want really anybody to think of us very much in this new media world. They have gone after bloggers in the past with cease and desist letters about about links. But there was there were a couple of other senior officials interviewed over the past week, ten days, whatever it's been now, that have said uh, we're not. Uh, really going after the individual bloggers. This is more about wholesale uh, stripping of our content and slapping it up. But if they go after any up. aggregator, and mind you, I work with one called Daylife, uh, but if they go after any aggregator for links and headlines, then and if they succeeded, God forbid, that affects the entire internet. But what I think is, the, I think the fundamental question that's so far unanswered, and John's absolutely right, we just don't know what they're saying here. It's been very murky. But the fundamental question is, are they saying we have a right to this, but we're not going after this very limited issue? We're going after the wholesale scrapers. And if that's By the, the way, case, how many of those are there really? There are spam bloggers, but I don't see this as the problem that's going to. Uh, it's very difficult the to, fi- to figure that out. I mean, nobody, they never quantify it. Nobody ever points out. I think there are examples of people who may go too far, and I think that's worthy of discussion. But in the scheme of things, it's such a small issue. I mean, I was one of the editors who started such a regional network, I did it in Colorado on an informal basis. We did it because our, our focus was on readers and we wanted to produce better newspapers and websites for readers and, and we didn't care about what the AP rules were. So I think that's just a natural evolution. And the truth is with AP, we went to AP years ago and said, look, your rates are too high, but we'll work with you to find new revenue sources online. And we said, look, we should be able to get our rates down to zero. What did you pay? We were, we were paying almost a million dollars for the Rocky Mountain News a yeah, year. That's an extraordinary at, amount of fees. At the, end of the, at the end, I think because of you know, uh, serious cost-cutting on their part and an effort to reduce our rates, we might have been in the sevens. But, I mean, it was a serious, you know, hundreds and you hundreds. You could have had a lot of reporters for that money getting local news and local value. Absolutely. And truthfully, we didn't need – I mean, I agree with you about the courageous reporting of the AP, and I don't think that should ever be forgotten, that there's, a, there's journalism going on, that, they're, that they're, they can be a very important resource, especially especially as we're in this transition phase. But it's very expensive and they're not willing, to, in my view, to be creative about it. I thought it was very telling also. If you read the formal announcement of this uh, digital rights management uh, uh, package that's still kind of unclear to us all, I think, uh, at the bottom of it, they said, by the way, just so you know, we've negotiated a fairly serious rate reduction for our TV members for their websites. Anyhow, moving right along. And it's, you know, it is about the management of their cost structure. They're balancing unhappy clients and unhappy non-clients out there who nonetheless rely on the AP to be sort of this wire to the world. And the AP's position, I mean, they're a giant, but it seems to me as though they're feeling somewhat at once arrogant and tenuous at the same time, well, and that's a very tough tension. You, you said it earlier, where where the this new economy, they really can't succeed in it because of their ownership, right? If you're going to succeed in the link economy versus the content economy, where the syndication of content just doesn't sell anymore because you you need only one link to get one copy to get links, well. In that case, one of the imperatives of the link economy is that he or she who gets the links has to monetize them. But the AP can't because it can't establish a consumer brand and advertising because then it would compete with its clients who are its owners in part. Well, and you I think John can speak to this too, but we've been hearing over the last year and a half, call it, sort of notions of, well, maybe we'll create our own little news sites that'll be more likely to draw in consumers. Maybe we'll figure out a way to do, oh, well, we're not trying to upset you in Colorado. We're not trying to upset them in Los Angeles. But they're... they're t- trying to find their way to a future. 
I'm not necessarily convinced that there can't be ways in which news organizations find an ability to charge for content to some degree. I, you know, I, we could talk about what Google would do. I think it was interesting to hear somebody from Google saying, hey, we have every respect to the rights. And in fact, my recollection is that Google and Yahoo have negotiated deals with AP and major content providers to some they degree. Have. So, they so you know, it's not as though Google is, is completely oblivious or, or rejecting of that concern. And the question is, of course, those deals aren't public, but okay, did the board and did the executives of the AP negotiate a good deal? If they didn't, that's on them. It's not on the newspapers. So I did ask Josh Cohn for some advice for the industry. If you could sit at a whiteboard and give them your top three tips for how to succeed on the internet, what are they? Yeah, so I think one of the things that's that's certainly scary for publishers, aside from the, the very real challenges with the business model, is this idea of, of, of letting go. Um, and that is that is core to the internet. Uh, this idea of distribution of the content, and and I think that when it when publishers first got into it, they sort of saw this false choice between creating a really compelling destination website that people would come to and never leave, or I can decide to distribute my content and sort of make it as widely available as possible. And I think increasingly publishers. Uh, understand, or, or at least they, they, they need to understand, that it's not a, an either-or proposition. Rather, it's a question of both. I think that's significant because here's Google who causes a billion links uh, clicks a year to news sites saying, we're not all about driving traffic to your site. You should be going out there and embedding your site wherever you can. The Guardian has an API to enable that. I wonder why news stories shouldn't be in YouTube-like players that people can embed it becomes a different architecture for how the web operates. And I think what you're describing is really exciting from a news standpoint, the idea of being able of other people being able to share and embed what they think you've done that is is interesting and you can attach advertising to that in such a way that there still could be revenue attached to it. Well, I mean, absolutely. I mean, you're looking at a guy at the moment who works for a news organization, and I'm not speaking for it. I'm just a reporter for NPR, but we believe in that. I mean, we give away our product every day on every platform. And in fact, we've essentially opened up our, our code in such a way that people can embed it. We've encouraged people to put it on their blogs. We're you know, allowing people to use it how they'd like because we feel that it's a public service. We're a different model, so we understand that. And we're, we're respectful of the fact other people have to come to finances in other ways. But it's, it, go ahead. Well, I, the thing I think is, is that news people keep thinking that the way to make money is off news. And it's not. News is the brand to me, but it's not where the money is going to be. It's going to be in relationships, in some form of relationship. And for local news organizations, it's going to be principally in local relationships, I think, and, and connecting in a transactional being involved in the transactional life of a community, involved in the community. And I think a lot of the services are going to have nothing to do with news because who wants to be advertising next to, you know, Iran uh, mistreated prisoners and signs of abuse? That is not an environment that the new Ford wants to be um, surround itself with. It's, you know, it's an important environment, but the, 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 bus the businesses have to have complex um, business operations that are looking for revenue in different ways and don't just say news is how we make money because if it is, they're not going to make it. So you're saying something really big and maybe heretical in the business is that uh, the news business isn't just about content and distribution. I am. It's about relationships. I am. So onward. Take the hard work out of listening. Set up your free subscription to the Media Talk USA podcast. All the details can be found at guardian.co.uk slash mediatalkusa. Still to come in this podcast, 
Will we see reporters and publishers outside at Christmas time with the sidewalk Santas? We ask our panelists whether journalism is becoming a charity case. Media Talk USA from The Guardian and paid content. But first, on July 14, a hacker named Kroll sent 310 internal, highly sensitive, and potentially embarrassing internal documents from Twitter to the folks at TechCrunch. Among the mundane phone logs, meal preferences, and calendars were plans to create a Twitter-based reality show, security codes, financial projections, and notes from executive strategy meetings. TechCrunch recognized the potential ethical quandary, but went ahead and put several of the documents out in the public domain. So I ask, did TechCrunch cross the line? And for that matter, where the hell is the line? I mean, what I read what uh, uh, one of the senior editors at TechCrunch wrote about uh, dealing with these issues. They said, you know, you get all this information, you get clearly internal documents, internal emails, chatter, talks about interviews with job candidates. And I thought he actually did a rather responsible job of laying out the ethical quandaries here, saying, look, there are job candidates who are legitimately seeking employee. If their current employers knew about it, they might be fired. We're not publishing those names and emails. Uh, but they, what they did do was use some of those documents to indicate the strategy of Twitter, which has been a great question in the tech world, in the media, social media world. Nobody knows how they intend to monetize or make money or grow. The person who obtained these things and did the hacking, they clearly said, we think this person probably broke laws or at the very least behaved unethically and did. We're journalists. We did. They say they did nothing to encourage or solicit this. They say they got this information. As a media guy, I don't see the problem here. But it was still stolen property. John, would you have allowed it to go in your paper? I absolutely would have. Uh, but we would have consulted with a lawyer and we would have looked at – um, what belonged in the public domain and what what would be a problem? I mean, I point out to privacy, job seekers. What's the public interest in that? But there's a great public interest in what is the strategy of Twitter? What is the what is the um, what are they thinking about how they're going to make their way in the world? And and I think they did the right thing. And I, I look at what TechCrunch has written about it, and you look at they tried to act responsibly and provide something of real value to an audience. And um, you know, as as David said, they didn't aid and abet the stealing of documents. And anyone who's been an editor is used to receiving um, envelopes, uh, computer files. You must first determine the authenticity of what you receive. Which it sounded like they very much did do because they were because in consultation con with, with Twitter about you're it. You're absolutely right. I mean, that is the essential first step. You know, what is it that I have and is it fake or not? And this was also not, uh, you know, the example in Cincinnati where a newspaper reporter was given a, a voice code uh, password so that he could go in and listen to voicemail messages. I think even that was more uh, blurry than perhaps the lawyers at the Gannett company, the parent company, the newspaper ultimately decided. But, you know, you know, if you were to take away anybody who had an axe to grind, you'd take away, and obviously this is one extreme, but the Pentagon Papers, you know, if you were to take away this, you know, think of how impoverished our understanding would be about the internal dealings at uh, AIG or Goldman Sachs, Lehman Brothers before the collapse, during all this financial calamity. If you were to say to the Wall Street Journal, by the way, don't do anything that you're not uh, that you wouldn't expect to be publicly uh, presented on a on a company website. Ah, yes, the transparency era, and 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 I agree with that. And the Pentagon Papers was the theft, and it was in the public interest. But what you've, the line you've gone over here, which I think is probably legitimate for the reasons you just mentioned, David, is that business is public interest. Public interest in taking our government documents, making that more transparent. Yes, when Apple fought leaks and uh, and and uh, tried to shut down a blogger because of them. 
Apple's arguments were that these are trade secrets. This is a private you know, matter of a, of a company. But I think your point, David, about the companies that ruined our economy make them indeed public interest. Well, but, I think but that- is Twitter really – you know that big and that it important is because Absolutely. think about the, the the you know the uprising in Iran and the, and the, and the the influence that Twitter had. I mean, it's an important entity, and I'm sure there were lawyers who were looking at the trade secret issue, and I'm sure they had conversations with Twitter to talk about what is trade secret. I mean, I'm not sure they would have given away code, for example, that might have been trade secret, but to talk about strategy. And anyone who's been in a company knows. That in strategy meetings, a lot of things are said that never will occur. It's an important, it's an essential ingredient of running a company. So I, I look at it, I, I think they acted very responsibly and there's a high interest in what Twitter's going to do. And it's, it was amazing to me that they were talking about a billion, an audience of a billion people using Twitter. It gave you some perspective of what these people with this, you know, it's only, what, 40 million right now, a billion I mean, personally, you know, as a as a former newspaper reporter and as a current beat reporter, would I feel more comfortable if somebody from uh, TechCrunch had gotten it through the assiduous cultivating of sources so that they understood the context in which the meetings occurred before obtaining this document dump, you know, so that they had, uh, you know, they had worked their way to it as opposed to it landing on their lap. Sure. But I mean, that's not the issue. The issue is you take the information. I was impressed by the degree of contextualization. I've got to say, uh, I understand there are trade secrets like computer code. I understand there are trade secrets. Uh, you know, I'm sure Coca-Cola doesn't want you know the special uh, ingredients of uh, classic Coke revealed on the front page of the New York Times. But ch- journalist job is not. I mean, the cult of secrecy that has enveloped Silicon Valley companies. The idea that Apple should have this shroud of mystery until it's re- ready to be revealed, and that it's inappropriate to ask certain questions. There's no question that's inappropriate to ask. There's no. Uh, notion, you know, companies get upset if you ask questions of sources that they hear about indirectly later. And let me add, media companies are among the companies that get upset when you do that. And I've learned that many, many times again and again. But that's fine. That's what the reporters are being paid to do. If you don't like reporters doing it, then you don't really want to understand the news. And the more you can operate in the open, the better off you're going to be. Well, I understand that you believe in transparency. The company doesn't have to operate that way. But But they'd be smart if they did. If you said everything we do, it's it's part. It's, it's like going to uh, uh, don't be evil, right? It's like going to go, don't be evil. It really says, are we holding true to our? Uh, and by the way, Google is one of the more secretive companies around, and you've got to sign an NDA to get in there to eat lunch. But the notion that we're always holding ourselves to some standard and that everyone can and should do that—it's probably not a bad discipline. Media Talk USA with Jeff Jarvis. In my latest Guardian Media column, I looked at charitable donations that are supporting journalism. The Bureau of Investigative Journalism will launch in the UK with a two million pound donation from the Potter Foundation. The Huffington Post has started a nonprofit investigative unit funded by $1.75 million in donations. The New Texas Tribune will fund coverage of the state capitol with gifts from a local venture capitalist and his friends. The New York Times, in a continued effort to look under every rock for revenue, is even reportedly wondering about taking donation grants from foundations. Perhaps the most notable of all is The Guardian, which is supported by a trust. Is this the future? Have we given up on the search for a profitable business model for news? Are we a charity case? I sure hope not. I I really feel that, I mean, I think that's one avenue and it's a legitimate avenue. And I think you're going to see good work or continue to be done by nonprofits and uh, charitably funded 
uh, investigative reporting outfits, but I do not see that as the future of journalism for our society. And I really hope that the industry does not, you know, succumb to this idea that it's hopeless and that the only solution is basically to ask for money from rich people. But we always point to, everybody points to NPR. Look, they're so darn good, and they do it without this this mean old profit thing. Yeah, well, I mean, look, we've got to run in the black too. You know, we had to cut uh, our, we had layoffs of 7% at the end of last year, and uh, all of us who remained took significant uh, furloughs and other kind of compensation cutbacks for the next, call it year, year and a half to ensure there wasn't another round of those. So it's not as though we don't live in the real world. I, I think of uh, – I spoke with uh, Victor Navasky, the f- publisher emeritus of the nation le- leftist uh, publication. Uh, and he, he – you know, it's a charitable essentially foundation organization. And he used to joke that he paid uh, Calvin Trillin and other writers in the high two figures. You know, it wasn't clear to me at that point which was the charitable organization, the writers or the publication. NPR is a different kind of model. And one of the things that enables us to succeed as far as I can tell is that people feel they're getting something back. You were talking about community earlier, John. Uh, you know, I worked for a newspaper for about 14 – a couple newspapers for about 14 years before I joined. And when I'd go to a party, people would always say, oh, you're a newspaper reporter? You know what's wrong with your newspaper? Now, on the one hand, I felt proud that they felt enough of a sense of ownership. They were entitled to say this. On the other hand, when people ask me what I do, I tell them where I work. They say, you know what I love about NPR? And there's an investment stake and that's a very different kind of sensibility. I don't think every news organization can suddenly announce, hey, we're a not-for-profit and suddenly money will come coursing in. They have to give people an owner – a sense of – not an ownership but a sense of of ownership. The one other not-for-profit that I think of was the one done by uh, uh, the Ayers family down in Anniston, Alabama where – you know, as the family aged and as it was clear the next generation wasn't prepared or willing to take over and run it, they said rather than sell off to Gannett – and this was before the collapse. This was in the mid-2000s. So they could have made real money off this. Rather than sell to McClatchy or Knight Gannett, they said, we're going to turn this into a teaching institution like a teaching hospital. And it, we, as we turn over our shares, it will become a not-for-profit. And that is a very intriguing and an honorable model, I think, uh, as that goes forward. But, you know, it's tough times for not-for-profits too. John, you say it's not time to declare surrender. Knowing what you know now, and your blog is wonderful because you're looking at the news world in new ways and confessing that. Thank you. Um, So you're also saying, I think, gee, if I knew what I, uh, if I knew then what I know now, I would have blank. I would have. What would? What could you have done to have secured the future of the Rocky Mountain News? Well. in, in Denver, we were hamstrung by the business situation, by being partner with 50-50 partners with another organization. But we're also hamstrung by our own tradition. Let's face it. It's really difficult for organizations run by men in their late you know, 50s, 60s with real responsibilities to investors and to the shareholders to take radical steps. And I'm just not sure that those people are going to be the ones who discover the new paths in journalism. So in in sort of uh, what I I love the practice of journalism. I miss not being able to practice journalism. I like writing about journalism. I like writing about the media, but I'd also like to do journalism. And and so I tried to focus on the things I could control when I was a newspaper editor. And what I could control – at least the best of my ability, was content. You know, what are you doing with content? But I don't think we were working together with a vision in mind of what the world would look like. Admittedly, 
we were going to be wrong because, you know, we were talking earlier about the iPhone app. Who would have predicted that the iPhone app would be this huge development? And, and you know, so we're going to be surprised, but I don't think we were digital enough. And I don't think we helped our customers be digital enough. And I keep going back to thinking if we could have been the facilitator and the participant with our customers into helping them find their way in the digital world and building a digital community where they had a place in it, there might have at least been a place for, for it. And then, frankly, newspaper industry got fat and happy. And, you know, they were willing to pay people. And, you know, uh, you know, we talk about Boston Globe had contracts guaranteed for life. I mean, whether those were real or not, I mean, we know that they're close enough that there was the feeling that people had contracts for life. And so, you know, I think we need much, much more experimentation. And interestingly, I mean, we've talked about the New York Times today. We've talked about NPR. NPR is really experimenting on the web. I think the leadership of the NPR web's you know, it's really good. And, you know, you look at what the New York Times is doing. They're doing a lot of exciting things online. Tremendous. And, yeah. And interestingly, uh, David, you told me that you took a bunch of training in multimedia. And, John, you're here in New York at MediaStorm taking training in multimedia. You're, in a sense, learning, relearning how to do journalism, no? I think that this is going to be a lifelong arc that we're going to be learning and relearning and unlearning some of what we learned, which we're already doing, you know, uh, as we figure out what what comes next. I mean, you know, part of, you know, I I look at John and I, I really enjoy reading his blog. It's great. I had friends who worked at his newspaper okay. and I, I grieve for its loss. You know, uh, it's a problem. You know, I look at the model that John provides, but I also see, uh, without any animus, I see a guy who is a publisher and an editor and maybe financially situated in a way where he can do this in a way where somebody who is earning $65,000 a year as a news or sports columnist or as a leading political writer uh, who's out of a publication, has a kid and a mortgage and is not – never expected to be rich but expected to be compensated for their, their sweat equity. You know, part of that's gone in Denver and you saw a number of startups <coughs> – excuse me – a number of startups with relatively modest requests of their readers but because the readers didn't know what they were getting, because they had no sense of what the institution was, because they had no investment in it, they decided we're not even giving 3 to $5 a month for that. And it, you know, we're in a patchwork world where it's not going to be all not-for-profit. It's not going to be all for-profit. It's not going to be all big. It's not going to be all small. It's going to be all fumbling and stumbling towards uh, you know, what comes next. Here at CUNY, we'll talk about this in next month's podcast, we're running the New Business Models for News project where we're trying to envision the sustainable future for news. One thing we found in our research, we surveyed a lot of hyperlocal bloggers. Some of them are pulling in between $100,000 and $200,000 a year in revenue. Now, you start to see that and you see a real business there and you see a new foundation, I think, for local journalism. But what strikes me about both that and this notion of charitable support for journalism I prefer not to look at it as charity. I prefer to look at it all as the beginnings of collaboration. The notion that the newspaper owned the journalism in a town and if you gave us anything, it was a gift is opposite from the notion that I'm out here making my own blog and reporting my own stuff and you should link to me and I'm adding news and information into a larger ecosystem, into this kind of messy sphere you described, David. Um, that's a different structure for journalism itself. No, I think it's great the way you're 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 trying to position it, and and that it that it is a matter of collaboration. We just don't know what that's going to look like, and I think some of us are mourning a past where we had these huge organizations that that had the resources to do the kind of reporting that's you know very very difficult to do, and um, 
You know, David's absolutely right to point out, you know, in my case, I'm lucky to be a certain age also where my children are grown. I'm not raising a three-year-old and a five-year-old. I, my kids are out of the house. And, uh, you know, we're, we're going through these tumultuous times. And I, and I think you're pointing out something positive. And I think flipping the model the way you are and saying collaboration. Well, it's really looking at the total P&L. What we've done in this discussion so far is, in the industry, not here in the room, is talk about trying to preserve revenue lines we used to have and we should still have them. Well, you also have tremendous cost savings, not the, the kind you both had to endure, which is just, uh-oh, here's the Grim Reaper, okay, here's my sacrifice to you. Instead, new ways to operate more efficiently that allow us to do more journalism for less. And to me, the key to that has to be collaboration. Well, it's interesting, though, because I was thinking as you were talking about, uh, you know, the question of the ownership of news, you know, does the Denver Post own the news for Denver? You know, a sobering thought for any any former Rocky editor, right? <laughs> uh, and it, it's almost going back to times when even cities like Denver and Baltimore and other places had three to five newspapers, you know, where no one, you know, one paper might be bigger than another, but nobody owned all of the facts. Accounts might be slightly different, you know, understanding of what defined news might be slightly different. And so there's at once more of a collaboration, a lot more competition. But, you know, those institutions can own in a sense, the news and content they present, not financially, but they can own it as saying, this is our best understanding of what's going on. This is our best understanding of what's important. But in this world, as you're describing and as you've you know, preached, you know, there can be more, much more of a two-way conversation. So that's – there's pushback amen, brother, and, and, amen. and redefinition of that. <laughs> and that, that can be a fascinating future. I mean that could be a really lively, interesting time. It's not by any stretch even for somebody who came up through newspapers. It's not all depressing at all. But – John, you remain somewhat pessimistic having gone through this, that the legacy organizations can be the ones to do that? Yeah, I do. I, I am somewhat pessimistic. Not that they won't because there's there's inertia in society and, and these institutions have certain competitive advantages and we will get through this – you know, there is a cyclical aspect to the, to the economic downturn that there will – advertising will come back to some degree. Nobody knows to what degree. So there's going to be some benefits to – to the, to the mainstream news organizations. But the real question is, what do they look like three to five years from now? And um, I see some examples of real adventurous thinking, but mostly it's not. It's hunkered down. Most people at news organizations, most leaders, I think today are basically saying, we're trying to survive this storm. Put the shell up and make sure that when it's over, we still exist in some shape or form and we can sort of come out from the shell and find some ground and start again and sort of and, – and I really think that's what – it's a survive – we're in a survival period. But that assumes that you're Noah and you're going to come out and the sun's going to shine and you're going to find dry land and everything's OK again. It's not. The world has changed utterly and but if permanently. But if you don't assume that – then it's really, really hopeless. And, and um, you don't have anything to prom- – you know, you're a public company. What do you promise your shareholders? What's your story to your shareholders? I mean it's really – I mean it's really grim if you don't sort of say, you know, we do have a franchise. And, and these papers do. The Denver Post does have a franchise in Denver. I mean and um, it's just can they afford to do it the way they are? And my view is – you know, it's very difficult to find investors today who are going to be willing to invest in a, a lot of money in a local media company when they see the wreckage and destruction. You know, I'm a victim of the wreckage. I understand that it's going to go on. I think we're going to see a lot worse. There's, there'll be more. 
So that's a real problem because I think there's ways to create strong local news companies that don't look exactly like. That indeed take very little investment. That can be much, much, much smaller. I think they, they don't could. have two thousand employees. How many employees total did? Uh, well, I mean, the Rocky, Rocky have it was complicated, height. but but let's say a paper like that would have twelve to fifteen hundred employees, and then many truck drivers and contract people. So that you know, it's it's complicated to get the full. But many lives were affected by the loss, and you look at it, and you go, if you change the distribution model, um, you can reduce your costs and change your model. And frankly, perhaps. There'll be a greater emphasis on content and, and again, content, and I would call that con- connectivity and relationship as well, because that's actually going to be the key thing. One of the interesting things is that you see, in, even in those markets where people are talking about, hey, we've got to find new models, we've got to do experimentation, we can all find individual projects and occasional papers where like, hey, this is thinking differently in a Las Vegas sun, some places yeah. where some really interesting stuff going on. At the same time, when you really see media companies do what they're calling innovation, uh, you know, for some reason, the, you know, uh, the tie never goes. Uh, <laughs> you know, the house always wins, and it means that that there's been, to my mind, uh, a diminishment of imagination, a diminishment of intelligence, a diminishment of uh, respect for the consumer and for what they're interested in. It's all been a, a compression and a constriction, and. Uh, a dulling of imagination as they reinvent what newspapers look like. So I'm, you, you do see people talking about reimagining, uh, reconfiguring the architecture of the newspaper, and so far I'm not seeing it in a way that that inspires joy in life. Well, it sounds like you're both saying that what we have to do instead is invest in a new generation of entrepreneurs. I think that's one of the steps. I think the youngest generation, the younger generation, your students are going to be those entrepreneurs who, who, are, gonna, who are not going to be able to look towards a life that they know they're going to be able to be part of a major news organization, which is going to sort of give them the platform to do their work. They're going to have to create the platform with their own energy and by, by the participa- participa- participation and collaboration with others. I'd argue that's a significant part of the patchwork. But I think there have to be people allowed to focus on what they want to do. You know, if, if what they want to do is journalism or narrative or telling stories um, in multi-platform ways, I think all these things are valid. Uh, the uh, how to put this: the idea that everybody has to be entrepreneurial uh, means that their relationship to the news business has changed. Well, guess what? It is changing. It's being forced upon them. But I'm not convinced that that's the only track that we have to look at. I think we have to be on. A, you know, we have to have a, a split screen with sixty-eight different screens at once that we're all looking at because we nothing is foreordained. Newspapers don't have to be dumbed down. We don't have to write them off. Newspapers, you know, the paper may be metaphorical at some point. I think they'll always be a lingering thing. There may be a place for that. You know, you haven't seen newspapers any of them try the Economist model. You haven't seen any of them say one section a day you know, 16 or 32 pages, but it is going to be the densest 16 pages you have instead of these, these thin fourth section things that don't provide you, but, you know, eight you know, minutes a day of reading. I'm just saying that nothing is foreordained in this. And so there may be entrepreneurs that need to happen. There may be people who say, no, we are going more rigorously into content because that's going to be something we can get people to value. But in any case, in. are we arguing that we need innovation? That the old ways ain't going to pull it anymore. Absolutely. And the only thing I would say is I don't – I think it's really important to the, to recognize that the people who are running these businesses today in some ways are not um, diminishing the franchise. The people who ran them in earlier periods ran them in easier periods. 
in many respects. They had quasi-monopolies in certain areas, like classified. It gave them a cushion. And suddenly you have people who are scrambling to survive. And, 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 I, and I, I think it's very important to recognize that they're looking to make it work. They just and, – and there's not – they don't have a diminished view of the audience. They just don't know in this changing climate how to be successful. Well, let's hope somebody figures it out. And that wraps up this month's podcast. John Temple, David Falkenflick, thank you very much for coming into the studio. You bet. Thank you. Media Talk USA is produced by producer Glenn Osten Anderson and is recorded at the studios of the City University of New York Graduate School of Journalism. Don't forget to add your comments to our blog at guardian.co.uk slash mediatalkusa. Make sure you subscribe from there, too, and don't miss next month's edition, which will be uploaded in the first week of September or as near as we can get. I'm Jeff Jarvis. Thanks for listening. Media Talk USA from guardianamerica.com and paidcontent.org.